What was I thinking? I'm going to do a four-part series on the human condition. Do you, do you glimpse the grandiosity of that? I could, I could do a 400 million part series on the human condition and not come close. But I promised. And if you don't mind struggling with me a little bit more, this being the third of the four, we will get through it. I'm not sure what it will look like when we're through, but there's something about the process that I hope will be redemptive. Last week we, we read and I preached on the second creation story in Genesis 2 about Adam being born out of dirt and formed into a man and God blowing God's breath and bringing life and then out of Adam's rib came Eve and, and at that moment uh, when Adam sees this wonderful beatific vision, he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And he has this immediate sense of unity with Eve. And, and, it, and it says after the end of the passage, and they were naked and not ashamed. And it, and it could imply that they lived happily ever after. Only we know better. There they were, a perfect life in the garden, no fear, no anxiety, no conflict. Everything they needed was at their fingertips, but not everything they wanted. There was this one thing, this one tree, this one forbidden fruit promised to bring all knowledge. Augustine in the third, fourth century, used this passage to develop what is known as substitutionary atonement theory. That'll put you to sleep. But basically what he's saying is because of this one event, as in Adam all have sinned, all are now infected by sin. And since we are infected by sin and have sinned against God only, we have to do something to receive God's love and forgiveness. But since we're infected by sin, we can't pay that price to receive God's love and forgiveness back in. So God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to pay that price for us. Substitutionary Jesus for our sins in order to be atoned. And, and I got to say that if you believe that, that's good. But I would like today to share another option for that. An option I think better explains the Hebrew text as it was written by Hebrew people in a different context of Augustine. Just try it on as a possibility. There's nothing here but the story itself. And the deeper I got into it and tried to make sense of it, the more complicated it became. And it forced me to ask a lot of questions I hadn't asked before. Today, I, I pray that you will ask them as well. 
Hear the word as it comes to us from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 10. We'll do the rest of that chapter next week. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, knowing all things. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool evening of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Let us pray. Oh God, a case could be made that all human creatures have been hiding from you all along. Open our ears to hear you call our names. Where are you? In Christ's name, amen. If you've tuned in the following two weeks, you know that I have talked about the two creation stories, the one in the first chapter up to chapter two, four, and then the one that follows for the rest of chapter two. And in, and in those creation stories, I, I, I delineated, I separated the two different atom types that were being created. The first, the first story was Adam one, I said, and the second was Adam two. Adam, Adam one is, is the steward of God's creation, the manager, the, the, the person who takes care of things, who gets on the tractor and, and rows, the, rows the ground enough to grow the corn and, and grows it well and produces it and sells it and, and takes care of all that God had given him. Adam, Adam one is, is the steward. And Adam two? Adam two is 
circumspect, questioning, lonely, and, and more aware, seemingly, than Adam 1. Adam 1 is aggressive, assertive, bold, victory-minded, reaching for the stars. You look at your bulletins today, the way we got that amazing telescope in orbit was because of the Adam 1s who were able to technically, mechanically put it together. Adam 1 looks at this picture of the nebula and says, wow, how many stars are there? How many light years are we away from it? What's that nebula made of? Dust? We're made from stardust then. Adam 1 is the scientist. Adam 2 is the philosopher and theologian. Adam 2 is aware that something greater is around us and within us, something greater than a scientific or total, I mean, excuse me, utilitarian reality. And Adam 1 longs for partnership and intimacy and closeness and love and meaning and connection and wants to know not how many stars there are, but falls on his knees in awe and wonder trying to imagine what it is behind all of this to begin with. And the point I'm trying to make is that we are both. We have Adam 1 and Adam 2 in us. We are both introverted and extroverted. We are both left brain and right brain. We are a combination of polarities that make us human and only makes things way more complicated than a simple analysis version that this is the way I am and this is the way life is and this is the way it will always be. No. When we live in this world with two polarities struggling against each other, it's called a dialectic. We are dialectical creatures. We can understand what it means at least imagine what immortality is like. And we doesn't take long to know what mortality feels like. I think, I think the key to life then is to find our place between those two things, an equilibrium. I was having lunch with a close friend of mine's, of my son, a close friend of mine whose son had just graduated from uh, one of those, you know, high-end intellectual colleges. And he was struggling, my friend said, and would I like to talk to him? I said, I'd be glad to, let's go have lunch. So um, his friend, his son called me, we set up a, a meeting and we, we were talking and chatting and doing the deal. And I said, okay, so uh, Scotty, what's going on? He goes, well, I, I just graduated from college about, about seven months ago, and I gotta tell you, I, I, wasn't, I, would, I didn't do great, I, I didn't do everything I should have done in college, I kind of played around, but I was serious enough, but now I'm out of college and I feel like that I've been given this amazing opportunity and gift and that, and that now my job is to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life, and, and because I really have deep down within me this profound sense 
that I should be doing something for this world, to help save the world. <coughs> but I'm depressed, he said, because I don't know what that is, and it, and it just seems so daunting. And I listened and smiled and nodded. Said, I, Scotty, I know what that feels like. But let me ask you a question. Um, Scotty, how many stars do you think there are in our Milky Way? This was edgy, by the way. It was as edgy for me to go there, but how many stars? He goes, I don't know. Well, two to 400 million, no, excuse me, billion. And how many, how many different galaxies like the Milky Way are there? I don't know, two to 400 billion. And how many planets do you think circle those stars? I don't know. I don't know either, I said, but it's a whole lot. If you come up with what they think, it's like 26 to the 27th power. That's nine sets of threes behind 26. That's the guess. And there may be more than one universe. And he's like, yeah, and? Scotty, keeping all that in perspective, do you really think your life matters this much to be this upset with what you're gonna do with it? It's the, it's the last thing I ever would have thought of saying to him. But it was the best thing I could have said because he bowed his head and he started laughing and he said, you just let me out of jail. No, don't get me wrong, Scotty, that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to do something. What it means, however, is that just give up on that narcissistic grandiosity that we carry around to think that you're the savior and find out what it is that you were supposed to do as Scotty. I was talking to myself as much as him, but it was, it was an awareness for both of us. It was an epiphany. It brought meaning. It called me on my own narcissism. Just like this morning's passage. For in this morning's passage, as I look at it, it, it matters not just what we have done, Augustine called it the fall passage. I'm not sure. As we look at it, it matters not so much what Adam and Eve did, but what God does and did. Their lives as the first couple in the garden, later named Eden, seemed like utopia. They were unselfconscious. They were unaware of sin and evil. They were naked and exposed and vulnerable and flourishing and not ashamed. They had a vocation. They had a purpose. They had companionship and they were in the garden. In the garden. Of course, where the natural beauty of God's creation flourishes. A golf course is a reasonable facsimile of a garden if you walk. But then, golf gets in the way. 
Studies show that the more we can connect to that garden, that natural dirt ground, the more we can be grounded in it, the more wellness we will experience. The great psychiatrist Oliver Sacks said, in 40 years of medical practice, I have found only two types of non-pharmaceutical therapy to be vitally important for patients with chronic neurological diseases. Music, gardens. Didn't you during the isolation of the pandemic actually appreciate the fact if you could get out of your house that we could walk with less noise, with a few less of those satanic leaf blowers? <laughs> Hate those things. I just bought an electric one, by the way. I commend it. There they are in the garden. Everything's great, no shame. What happened? What happened that would leave them afraid in hiding, aware of their shame, and not wanting to see God? They ate of the tree of goodness and evil. I think the story points to another reason. Even before they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, they had already chosen to go against God. They chose to listen to the wrong voice. They chose to listen to the voice of temptation, to the serpent voice. This, is, this isn't Satan, by the way. A lot of people say, well, that's the devil, that's Satan. There is no such thing as dualism in the Bible with Christians and Jews. It is a monotheistic God that we worship. There is no dueling powers of goodness and evil going against each other. If there is a Satan figure, it is only because God has created it to be so. Wrap that one around your head. It's the whole book of Job is about. It's what the whole Bible is about. They listen to a voice of this crafty serpent. You gotta say serpent. They took him seriously enough to give him an audience, or her, or it. No Flip Wilson here, the devil made me do it. No dualism, no cosmic battle. Just this serpent whose purpose is to be a literary device in the story to speak the voice that speaks in all of us. The serpent is that voice in all of us. Who am I, really? Do I measure up? Am I good enough? What do people think? If they only knew. You know that voice? You ever heard that voice? You know that voice, that, that temptation voice? 
They refused to listen to God and themselves for the deeper voice and instead listened to this voice of temptation. And these words from the serpent were words that told them that they were less than human. You don't measure up, the temptation voice says, and if you did, you would have as much knowledge as God does. You don't measure up, the temptation voice says, so therefore you need to eat of the tree of goodness and evil, and then you will know all things being like God. I don't know if you noticed in the story that the serpent speaks to the woman. She's not yet named, by the way, but Eve. And, and the story says that the two of them are standing side by side, maybe in front of the trees, two trees, tree of life, tree of goodness and evil. And, and the serpent looks at the woman, maybe because he, the serpent voice knew that Adam is the one who had had a direct conversation with God and that Eve's understanding of this was secondhand. And he, and he looks at and Eve and says, did God say you're not supposed to eat from any of the trees in the garden? Just a question to her. Adam stands there and doesn't say a blooming word. He doesn't open his mouth to speak. He throws his wife under the bus and lets her try to explain it. Well, as I understand it, God said, no, we can eat all the trees in the garden. It's just, it's just the tree in the middle of the garden. Well, there were two trees in the middle of the garden, which shows that, that Adam, just like every man, did not give her enough details to understand which tree it was God forbade. Then the serpent voice pulled the noose a little tighter with a little more inside information. Certainly you won't die. God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Still, Adam just stands there, just stands there, mute and passive. Maybe he was conflict averse. You know, you know, all of us have that, that peacemaking part of us and we just don't want conflict. Maybe, maybe that was, I think Adam was just slothful. You know what I mean by that? He was just slothful. He was too lazy, too unwilling to dive into the depths of this conversation going on between the serpent voice and his wife. He stood still. Why couldn't one of them had asked some questions like, who are you? Where did you come from? What is it you want? What is it you're trying to get me to do? Let's have a conversation about this. 
But Eve ate. And then when Eve handed Adam the fruit, Adam didn't object. Again, completely mute. Passively took the fruit and ate it too. Well, you know my motto, says Adam. Go along to get along. Martin Luther King revealed in his letter to the in the Birmingham jail to the pastors of Birmingham, he said that this, this is sloth when, when you don't speak up. He said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetuate it. Accepting evil without protesting against it is cooperating with it. Which means before they even ate the fruit, they were already in the tank, bobbing in the sticky syrup of goodness and evil. And what eating the fruit did was simply open their eyes to that reality. In this new light, they are able to see themselves and their own darkness and who they had become by passively giving themselves over to this voice of temptation you're just not good enough. And their, and their vulnerability and sin is immediately before them and they bow their heads in shame and cover themselves with fig leaves and go into hiding, which is exactly what shame does. It covers us so that we won't be discovered and God, being God, is not going to let them get away with it because God loved them too much to let them get away with it. And so God goes walking in the garden that evening and calls them by name, where are you? And, and they don't answer at first. And as God drew closer and they heard God's presence, finally, Adam stepped out from behind the trees and spoke. I heard you, God, walking in the garden, and, and, we, and I was afraid. Notice, Adam doesn't say anything about Eve. He's speaking only about himself. I heard you. I was afraid. We, we covered ourselves because we were ashamed. And God knows, but says, so how, how did you do that? What, what did you do to make you feel this shame. And Adam tells him, we ate the fruit. We can listen to the voice of the serpent enough that we become conditioned to it. They're black people. They're immigrants. They're Jews. That's the one we've heard ever since the beginning of time. They're just Jews. Well, he's just, he's got ADD or OCD. He's just stupid. We know that voice. You ever listen to that voice? You ever heard that voice talking back? Don't lie to me. Yes. And if we listen to it enough, 
without raising our voice and argue against it, which is exactly Adam's and Eve's sin, if we passively let that voice get its strength, we become conditioned to it so that we will do in lockstep whatever the next totalitarian presence pops up in our lives. After the 26th election, the Oxford Dictionary coined a new word to add to their volume. It's called post-truth. That's the word. It's now real, post-truth. And what it means is it is pointing to a reality in our world that doesn't matter what the facts say or the truth says, but what matters is what I want the facts to say and what I want the truth to say. I am now interpreting it on my own. And that's the world we're surrounded with, with a million gazillion voices trying to condition us to believe in the way they want us to. And this, when we listen to them, is sloth. It's giving up. It's not claiming the dignity and honor of who we are as God's children in God's image. This, we're not claiming our, our humanity with autonomy and freedom and voice and boundaries and prohibitions with a conscience of soul and a mind to question and argue with what this means and what does it do. That's our job as human beings. You ever, you ever seen a bunch of rabbis have a conversation about a passage? It's like Presbyterians. Wherever you have four rabbis, you're gonna have at least 15 opinions. And they're gonna argue about it because that's what it means to be human. But they're not going to shame the other in the conversation. I hope we'll take this at least from this story. Next week I'll talk more about consequences, but I hope we take this at least, that it is so full of good news and grace, of God's searching, always searching for us, wherever we are, however deep in hiding. This is the grace of it. God would not let them go. God in God's love and compassion Compassion confronted them enough so that they knew they were loved enough to have consequences. Where are you, God calls? Where are you? That's the voice to listen to. Amen.